0: Welcome to the Peter King podcast and coming off championship week headed for a historic Super Bowl in so many ways. There's like too much going on. Can we do a three hour podcast this week? I mean, I, I don't really know where to start or end. So let's start and then we'll end. Um, we've got three very interesting guests this week. First is Tampa Bay Buccaneers general manager, Jason Light, uh, who's really done a terrific job uh, obviously, in, in uh, recruiting and, and signing Tom Brady, first of all, trading for Rob Gronkowski. Uh, tremendous drafts the last two years. Um, so we'll talk to Light about all of that. Then we're going to go back in time a few days to the Green Bay-Tampa Bay championship game and the crazy stuff that happened at the end with Chris Sims of... Uh, NBC Sports obviously uh, my compatriot there and we're going to talk particularly about the last three Green Bay plays of that game which by the way I don't believe will be the last three games last three plays of Aaron Rodgers career but we'll get into that with Chris Sims and and we'll also talk to the new coach of the New York Jets Robert Sala you're going to enjoy this interview He basically decided 20 years ago, and you'll hear him talk about it, he decided 20 years ago that I'm not going to be in the business world. I want to coach football. Now, 20 years later, um, and spurred on in some ways by the events of 9-11, he is a head coach in the National Football League. It's a crazy story. It's kind of an inspirational story. And we'll talk with Robert Sala of the New York Jets about it. But first, just... A few thoughts pre Chris Sims about what we saw at the end of the uh, at the end of the Green Bay Tampa Bay NFC Championship game, and you know I've got two sort of overwhelming thoughts about this. One is that I never really take as gospel what a player says after an emotional game, particularly when The start of the next season is six months away. The start of training camp and all that. And and again, I don't know what's going to happen with Aaron Rodgers. I don't know what the Green Bay Packers are going to do. But Aaron Rodgers has three years left on his contract. I would fully expect him to be on the Packers in 2021. Um, But we'll see what happens. Um, But as far as the game itself goes, one of the reasons why I really wanted to talk to Chris, who is was a former quarterback in the NFL, is that there's been not much conversation about the fact that Aaron Rodgers did not play well on that last series. You know, they had, they had first and goal at the Tampa Bay eight-yard line um, and just outside the two-minute warning and he threw three straight incompletions. The third incompletion, was basically uh, he threw a worm burner he threw a ground ball to the goal line uh, with two uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers bracketing Devontae Adams he was not open he you couldn't even in your wildest dreams imagine Devontae Adams catching the ball that uh, that Aaron Rodgers threw was an ill-conceived idea of a pass. Rogers should never have thrown it. And and it looked like he had, (laughs) excuse me, anywhere from five to eight yards of green grass ahead of him. Uh, Mind-blowing to me why not more people are saying, why didn't he run the ball? Or, you know, why did he throw the ball to Devontae Adams? And of course, we'll get into that with Sims. But the larger question is you know what I really want out of my superstars, out of my stars? I'd really like them at the end of a game like that to say, you know, I got to do better. I got to play better in a series like that. So, you know, with all these questions about, should we have gone for the field goal? Should we have not? Of course they shouldn't have gone for the field goal. It was a dumb decision by uh, Coach Matt LaFleur of the Packers. But I would like to hear Aaron Rodgers say, You know, I could have played better on that last series. I should have played better on that last series. So some of this loss is on me, which it is. And that just left me shaking my head. But we'll get into that a little bit with Chris Sims. Let's start on a very interesting podcast week, the dead week uh, between the championship games and uh, the preparation week before the Super Bowl. Let's get into it with uh, Jason Light, the general manager of the Buccaneers, who I think has done an absolutely terrific job. So happy to be joined this week on the podcast by one of the men of the hour, uh, the general manager of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Jason Light. Uh, and Jason, congratulations on getting to the Super Bowl and being the first NFL franchise who will play the, that will play the Super Bowl on its home field.
2: Yeah, that's, uh, it really hasn't set in yet. That's, uh, it's a pretty cool, pretty cool thing.
0: Yeah. And it's sort of, you, you've had one of the most interesting years, I think, that anybody in your business could have. And I want to reflect just a little bit, um, you know, before we get into this game, but I want to reflect just a little bit on the team you built. You know, a year ago, you were sitting there, uh, with the with the Bucks with Jameis Winston as your quarterback coming off a year where uh, he obviously threw a lot of interceptions and you were looking around although you really hadn't eliminated Jameis Winston from consideration for coming back if I'm not mistaken for the 2020 season and uh, you know you had some interesting options you had Teddy Bridgewater and and uh, and then there was Tom Brady sitting out there and. Let's just go back in time, maybe to the first time you and Bruce Arians had a real conversation about the possibility of getting uh, Tom Brady on your team.
2: Yeah, it was about probably almost exactly a year ago. Um, I can't remember the exact date. We had a um, an end of the year like get together with a uh, staff. And with the business side, the entire organization, um, something that we have typically done. We can't do it now, but, you know, it was probably the last time we ever did something like that. And Bruce and I were, you know, mingling with people that we don't normally mingle with, you know, people that work in ticketing and accounting and all that kind of stuff and pulled it aside. And I remember saying, you know, there is one player out there that... <laughs> That you know may sound like a pipe dream, but we could consider it's Tom Brady, and um, you know it just kind of went from there. We had a lot of meetings, we had a lot of you know evaluations. We, all of our scouts and coaches, did you know, dotted their eyes, crossed their t's, doing all the evaluations of every quarterback that was available, and um, lo and behold, we are at this point now.
0: <laughs> when when you first started thinking about it. Did you have a good feeling about it? Did you just think it was, like you said, a pipe dream?
2: Well, for me, it was, you know, we we just, and my staff, we we just had to do our due diligence. And, um, you know, it, it was kind of weird. I think Clyde Christensen walked by his office one day and he was watching tape on all the quarterbacks. And he said, this is really weird. I'm watching Tom Brady. Like, there's a chance that he could become free if if he didn't go back to new england um he said i'm looking around he said he was looking around if there was a camera if this was some kind of prank (laughs) and um (laughs) um, so but for me it was it it was a little bit like i don't know if this is ever going to happen but bruce being as confident as he is he was like well why the hell wouldn't this happen why the hell wouldn't he want to come here um and um we you know this is i think we've talked about this before but or i have with someone that uh, we, John Spitek is my personnel director and um, I've got a great staff. I could talk for hours about them. Um, But we were in my office one day and Bruce was in there and I posed that very question. I said, well, why would he come here? Um, And Bruce said, why the hell wouldn't he? And then Spitek pointed to, I had a depth chart up in my office on my smart board and he said, this is why he would come. And he pointed to you know, Mike Evans and Godwin and OJ and, you know, our defense, uh, Levante and company. And he said, we built it. He will come. And so it became known as the uh, operation shoeless Joe Jackson. So no. um, we, uh, you know, then throughout the process, SpyTech would pop into my office or Mike Beal, my college director, or Mike Greenberg, our cap guy, or Rob McCartney, my pro director. Um, and just like every once in a while, would say, hey, go the distance. <laughs> or, or And drop little lines from field of dreams. So it was, it, was a, it was a fun time. It was, you know, they were just trying to keep my, uh, you know, keep my sanity, but also realize, hey, this, this could happen. So it was, a, it was a long, felt like years, um, but it was only months until we actually had the opportunity to talk to his agent and, um, and then ultimately talk to him when we were able to, but when we called his agent, Don Yee, um, the first thing he said was, you made the right call. So I knew at that point um, we had a chance. So it obviously told me that they had been um, looking at us as, as a, a potential option.
0: What's really interesting, that was, I believe, Monday, March 16, which would have been the first day of the legal tampering period. And as you told me back then, you and Bruce never talked to Tom Brady until Wednesday, the I think it would be the 18th, where you finally had a conversation with him. So that had to be a pretty big conversation. What do you remember about your talk with him? And it was you and Bruce at the same time?
2: Yeah, um, I, was, I went over to Bruce's house and um you know the minute that we could talk to him um i called him first and um he uh his first words were hey babe you know how he talks he said this is going to be fun um and i like i remember you know i had the phone and i went i think this is actually happening you know to bruce and uh he, you know, we had a we had a, you know, a talk for whatever it was, 30, 45 minutes. Um, he rattled off all of the players that we had. He obviously had done his homework, which is not to, I mean, which is us to be expected the way he is so detailed. Um, talked about every game we played and how close we were and um, our defense, how it stepped up the second half. And then I turned it over to Bruce, and those two just talked for it seemed like an hour, um, and then gave me the phone back, and first thing he asked was, "Hey, can you give me the numbers of all of the all of every player on our team? I want to I want to start talking to them." And we he, he told me I can't remember what the number was, but he had the exact number of hours that we had until we opened up the season with uh, with uh, New Orleans, and he said we have to take advantage of every minute. So um, I mean, he said we've
0: got twenty five thousand six hundred and forty seven hours whatever it is yeah Yeah. he he knew it was it
2: was pretty cool yeah
0: um and i wonder in a football sense obviously you think wow it's great we got brady on our team but i mean in a football sense were you pretty sure it would work were you positive it would work how did you feel right around that time in
2: in the middle of march I'll be honest with you. We thought it would work. We were confident, you know, I've got the most confident head coach, maybe in the history of the NFL. (laughs) You probably do. That um, was, of course, this is going to work. Hey, this is great, babe. You know, it's like, you know, here we go, man. Like, all right, great job. Let's, let's, let's go. Um, One other thing about that conversation that I've never talked about, it was after, you know, we had talked and, and um, we, you know, knew that it, this was gonna happen. Um, I said, hey, there's one other thing here. Um, it's a small thing, but maybe a big thing. Um, we have a number 12 on our team and he's pretty good in Chris Godwin. Um, well, what are you thinking about that? And he said, oh, you know, he's a great player. I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna take his number. Um, he, he's, you know what number I'm thinking of? I'm thinking of taking Maybe number seven. Is that available? And he goes, I said, Yeah, I think it is. I said, Why seven? He goes, Go after that seven Super Bowl. He goes, That's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> but turns out Godwin offered his jersey to him. Um, and, uh, you know, they arranged that however they did. That's between them. But um, um, I thought that that was pretty cool that he wasn't, he, you know, he's got the TB12 brand and all that, that he was going to demand. That really
0: he- does surprise me, by the way that he that he just didn't care or
2: seemingly didn't care yeah it was last thing on his mind well obviously he thought about it a little bit like hey you know what maybe i'll be number seven you know that's very good i like
0: that that's good um and one other thing about brady what's he been like around the building take me into uh take me into walking down the hall running into brady and and what's he like just around the
2: building He's the most humble um, superstar that I have ever been around. He is gracious. He's polite. He doesn't want to ruffle feathers. He doesn't want to be treated special. Um, That was very apparent from the beginning. He said, I've got to earn my players, uh, my teammates' respect. Um, When you pass him in the hallway, you. You know, he acts as if he's a practice squad. You know, player. Um, it's he obviously doesn't have that aura to him. It's like it's Tom Brady. You know. Um, yeah. So, but um, he he couldn't be more just quote unquote normal um, if he tried. It's it's really a great quality about him, and I think that's why he is such an exceptional, rare leader. That he um, he truly cares about. Everybody, his teammates, his coaches, staff, treats them all with, with with the utmost respect.
0: You know what I thought when he left New England? I mean, everybody has made it out to be, uh, you know, Belichick versus Brady and, and all that stuff. And I mean, you were in the organization, obviously, so you know both people very well. But I honestly felt that this is just, this is not someone's fault that Tom Brady left the New England Patriots this is I just look at it as sort of life who takes a job and when he's whatever 21 years old and stays in that job forever they're they're what 10 percent of the American population five I don't even know but I think it's pretty natural that a guy might want to see whether the grass is green or somewhere else maybe not even that he might just want to go somewhere else and play somewhere else I don't think it was a hatred of Belichick the Patriots or anything like that I think it was a realization hey if I could play a couple of years who knows two or three years at a place that has incredible talent why wouldn't I try that and I just I I think a lot of people want to paint this as this is someone's fault and I have never thought it was
2: Not at all. Not at all. I think you're exactly right. It's I think 5% may be a little bit um, overshooting that estimate. I think, uh, you know, 20 years at one place is a long time. And, you know, it's for him. I think he really likes challenges. I think he really likes um, um, to prove um, things just uh, that's, It's not about money for him. It's just about trying to do something that nobody else has done and not for personal gain. Just, it's just the way he's wired and he's always been wired. So I don't think it was anybody's fault. I think he wanted to try something new.
0: I want to talk just a little bit about the draft and um, obviously you're sitting in a room right now where I had a little bit of a view on draft night. Um, you did your draft from home, and you worked really, really hard. Uh, you allowed me to see your draft. I was able to FaceTime into the first round uh, of the draft and see you guys make a, a deal. You traded up one spot and took Tristan Wirfs, the tackle from uh, Iowa. But I thought what was really interesting about your draft is that You had two players, and I'm sure you had nine players, but there were two players that, from talking to you after this, you really, really wanted. One was Tristan Wirfs, and one was Antoine Winfield Jr. And again, there are others. I'm sure they weren't the top two players on your board, you know, but what I'm saying is those are two guys who you really had, your organization uh, had rated very highly, and you thought – man, if we could come out of the draft with these two guys, it, we, would, we would love to. And I just want you to tell me the story about, if you can, why you fell in love with each guy.
2: Well, with, with Tristan, he's, first of all, he's a very talented player. Um, he's very powerful, athletic. Um, he's an Iowa offensive lineman. You always got to like that. They're coached very well um, there and there's a great track record but getting to know him through the process of zooms um, we talked to him at the combine last year but just through zooms you could see what a what a humble person he was and just raised right fantastic mother um, and just you know we we got lucky a little bit in that that's the way he actually ended up being and what he is. You can get a little bit uh, bamboozled sometimes uh, with these interviews and guys don't turn out the way you think they're going to. Um, that's the draft. It's a crap shoot. Um, but just, you know, everything about him plus the fact that we have a 43 year old quarterback that we need to protect. And it was a, it was a natural, uh, Uh, decision that that's what we needed and that's what we got so moving up one spot we were worried about a couple teams coming up to that spot um, and getting them and it turns out that there were there was some action there that's why it took so long to to for them to agree to the trade they were um, going over whether or not it was better to move back one spot for them to get their guy or move back you know however many spots to later So found out after the fact that we, you know, once again, we got lucky, but we made the right decision in moving up that spot.
0: I remember by the way, uh, I think you were on the phone with Mike Mayock who had a pick of a couple of spots ahead of you. And you're on the phone with Mayock and in the background, I hear this blood curdling scream, mommy. And I just said, man, Jason Light now is dealing with what every American is dealing with right now, working at home. You know, there's, a, there's one wall separating Jason Light between the mayhem of his house and his three children <laughs> and drafting the next right tackle of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. That was a, I mean, I bet at the time you didn't think it was, but that was a cute, very Americana 2020 moment.
2: You know, it, it really was, if, if people want to know what the general manager of a football team does after, you know, we signed Tom Brady and, you know, had traded for Gronk and then draft, move up and take Tristan Wirfs, what do I do? You know, we had a little celebratory moment with the family, but what, what does he do afterwards? Well, I went into the kitchen and noticed our dog had an accident on the floor. So I had to clean that up <laughs> and then I loaded the dishwasher. So it's, that's that's the life of a GM now.
0: <laughs> Tell me about Winfield
2: well the obviously not every former NFL great who has uh, a son playing in college doesn't automatically mean that they're going to be a great player but it, it certainly helps when he has lived through most of his life of uh, seeing watching his dad you know play in the NFL and what it takes and The grind and everything like that so that was that was a plus for us not not the deciding factor but just once again it's almost like these two Tristan and and Antoine are related just the way they act it's they're just such great kids that just love football and they they're they're beat they're rookies this year so they didn't want to overstep their boundaries especially Antoine of hey I'm coming in here and I'm going to be the leader they're they're soaking it all in and that's Antoine and I've talked to our coaches several times uh, throughout the year saying man you're doing a great job with and Nick Rapone's our safeties coach I said you're doing a great job with Antoine and he says no if I'm doing a great job I'm just doing a great job not screwing him up you know just let him go give this kid I remember one day at practice uh, all the DBs were standing around um, we had you know a couple minutes before a new period started and and I said, "Hey, let's not let Antoine." I was joking around. Get a big head now. Um, you know he's not perfect. And they all looked at me and said, oh, "No, he is. He he, <laughs> does, he doesn't make mistakes. This guy is this guy is perfect." So, and it doesn't go to his head. He's such a just a humble person, just like we've been talking about. And I think that's I think that's the key to our success that we've had so far this year. Is that whole team is it's just a very um, just not selfless attitude, and I think it starts with uh, with Tom Brady.
0: So interesting uh, when uh, when you watch your team play. You know, Bruce Arians told me after the New Orleans playoff game that uh, you know he felt you know there are a lot of big plays in that game. He felt that the biggest play. Was when Winfield punched the ball uh, out of uh, whom i thinking of now. Look, but yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. The the uh, the tight end, he punched the ball out of his out of his grasp, and then Devin White picked up the ball, and he ran it for I don't know 20 yards or or something, and then, you know, that really was a huge turning point in the game. And I'm thinking to myself, I said a 22-year-old rookie safety punches the ball out. A 22-year-old defensive signal caller with the green dot on his helmet picks it up and runs it back a few yards. And then you guys basically, you know, clinch the game from there and, and win it from there. And I just thought for someone who's a general manager, it has to be an unbelievable feeling that your, uh, you know, your maybe your two long-term great players on your defense are 22 years old, going to New Orleans and be- resoundingly defeating Drew Brees in his, his last game. And I and I talked to White after the game on the phone. He, I mean, he was very nice and complimentary about Drew Brees, but he didn't care it was Drew Brees' last game. You know. It was the biggest game of his NFL life, obviously. And how do you feel when you realize that you really hit on two huge guys basically to mold your defense around for a while?
2: Well, it, it feels great. Um, once again, so, so proud of my staff that have worked so incredibly hard over the last few years. And to see it all come together, um, I'm just just very happy for them. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm the luckiest general manager right now in the NFL, I feel, because I just, I really do have an incredible staff and the coaching staff as well. And these guys really take a lot of pride into developing players and putting them out there as rookies. Um, a lot of coaches won't do that. And so we also had Sean Murphy Bunting had a big play in the game and Mike Edwards, um, you know, a lot of young guys, we, we, we get a little bit, I think it's a little unfair that we get labeled as an old team, um, but we have some some players that are up there in age, um, starting with Tom. And, um, but we also have a lot of good young players that have been, these last couple wins have been, you know, pure team wins. Um, you can't just put it on one person. It's, it's been a lot of guys, a lot of pieces that are coming together and coming together at the right time and hopefully it continues.
0: Two other things quickly. One is, how's the Antonio Brown been around your team this year?
2: He has been nothing short of spectacular. Um, His attitude, his work ethic, which everybody knows he works very hard, but just his attitude. Um, He's actually been mentoring players. Um, I see him on the sideline uh, this year talking to Leonard Fournette saying, hey, be patient. Your time will come. Um, be a team player and it's really a a remarkable moment like to see Antonio Brown being a mentor um, has been it's been spectacular he's couldn't be happier with with him what he's done for us as a player but also what he's done for us as a as a teammate so you know a lot of people wouldn't think you would be saying that about him but but I am he seems to have heeded the what clearly
0: is, you know, he's sort of at the last chance saloon here, you know, I mean, if if he if 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 this blows up with Tom Brady, Bruce Arians, you and, a, you know, a team around him that basically is the perfect team for him to succeed with, I, I doubt he's going to be getting many or, or any other chances. Um, Antonio Brown, Antoine Winfield, Super Bowl, they both missed uh, uh, you know, with injuries, the uh, championship game. Any gut feeling as we sit here, you know, for uh,
2: 12 days away? I do know that these guys desperately want to play. And whether it was the Super Bowl or, or not this coming up in two weeks, they desperately want to play and their mindset is right. And um, I'm, I'm optimistic at this point, but we'll see.
0: You know, it's also, I'll just end with this. I was so impressed when I visited your camp in August with a kid from Bowling Green named Scotty Miller, a wide receiver, who that day, it was the first day that you guys had offense versus defense uh, in training camp. And it was a big day and everybody was playing hard. Scotty Miller is diving. He's, junk, I mean, it's like the biggest day of his life. And at one point he comes back to the sidelines and he just vomits all over the ground. And I just said to myself, this, this is a kid who will do anything to be able to play uh, in the NFL and particularly play with Tom Brady. Am I right?
2: Yeah. You hit it. You hit the nail on the head. He's, you know, he's very, uh, he's a hungry player and he's uh he's a great teammate. And Tom wouldn't be throwing him those balls that he has this year if he didn't have confidence in him. Um guy will do anything to to help the team and very very happy for him and uh, and the way his uh career has has taken off a little bit here. Um coaches have done a fantastic job with him. Hey listen you you got to hit on the 208th
0: player in the draft occasionally to have a really good roster. I mean those are guys who you need those those picks really, really matter. Jimmy Johnson used to say all the time, I just want to collect a lot of picks because I know I'm going to be wrong on some, but I have enough confidence in our ability that if we have a bunch of picks, we're going to hit on a bunch of them. So I, I when I look at Scotty Miller, that's what I think that, Hey, you know, it's 208th pick in the draft, sixth round pick. And a lot of people passed on him, And those are the guy, kind of guys that, If they come in and play well, they helped your roster
2: immeasurably. You know, we could sit here and talk for a long time about my misses. um, Had had a lot of them. Um, Might not be the year to do that, though. You've hit on a lot of them, too. (laughs) I've kind of, as I've matured in this position, I've come to find out that when, when the coaches and the scouts are all uniform in their in their like or for a player during the draft process, and everybody wants a certain player. Uh, your chances of hitting on him go it's a thousand times better than any other player. Like if you know what, if I say I like this player, I know I don't care if you guys don't like him. You'll you'll end up liking him. Watch out, I'm I'm right, you're wrong. Usually it doesn't work. But when everybody likes a player, and Scotty Miller was one of them, Tyler Johnson wow. was another. Tyler Johnson was another one. I'm talking about the later round picks um Tyler Johnson was another one this
0: Tyler season. Johnson might might be I'm not saying he has the best hands in the NFL but the last two weeks he has made two catches that there's no way he should have made Clutch. and 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 I and I looked him up after the game and I said how can this guy be a late fifth round pick I mean come on how do you how, how is he the 160th or whatever he was picking the
2: draft That's, he's a a good player. I'll tell you, uh, last year at the Outback Bowl, which is played here, Raymond James. So I am able to use my wife's suite to go to the game and Bruce as well. And their suites are next to each other. And Bruce was at the game. I was at the game with my family and Tyler Johnson exploded in that game. And Bruce knocks on the window separating the suites and points at him and I said, good. (laughs) And then he goes, we need to take that kid in the second round. <laughs> so he was, he, we, you know, obviously we were apart this year during the draft, but he was banging me up on my phone and, on um, you know, on Zoom. He's like, when are we taking Tyler Johnson? If we would have taken him with the 13th pick, he would have been happy. <laughs> so. Hey,
0: that's, it's the art of the draft. All I know is that these last two drafts, man, you, you and your staff are killing it. You deserve really, You deserve a tremendous amount of credit for the Bucs being in this game. So congratulations to you, Jason.
2: I appreciate it, Peter.
0: And now my conversation, not quite as long as the Jason Light one, but my conversation with Chris Sims of NBC Sports. So I really wanted to have Chris Sims on this week uh, to basically go through the three plays that everyone, I don't know that everybody is still talking about it, but I can't quite get out of my head. First and goal from the eight yard line, Um, There is 222 left. Green Bay is behind in the NFC championship game by eight points. So they either need a touchdown and a two-point conversion, or as Matt LaFleur thought, a field goal, stop them, use your timeouts, get the ball back, maybe with a minute 30 to go, and then try again. Um, But again, what makes that so flawed is that so that means you've got to score a touchdown. You can't just kick a field goal. You've got to drive on this defense, that has done a pretty good job on you, and blah, blah, blah. So anyway, Chris, let's just go over these three plays, and, and cool. we'll start. I'll just go one by one, okay? Great. Um, so 222 to go, first and goal from the eight-yard line. So basically, you know, they, they spread the field, the Packers do, on each one of these snaps. Right. Each one of them, they have trips right, three receivers to the right. And on this one, they have a tight end that's tight to the formation. I think it's Mercedes Lewis. Yes, it is. Okay. And then they have have one back in the game. And so right now, I basically am looking at this snap. And it looks as though, you know, he wants to hit its play action to the back. And it looks as though he wants to hit Alan Lazard. And Alan Lazard was not wide open, but he was open at the five yard line and the ball just sailed over his head and it looked like Lazard wasn't looking. Give me your feeling on this play,
3: right? This is an intriguing play
0: and, it, and I
3: don't know if I know
0: all the answers here, but I certainly can tell you
3: what I think and, and my experience and I, I, ser- I watched Tampa and Green Bay on offense and defense every week. So you explained it right. The tight ends attached to the formation on the left. They got three receivers to the right. It's really an RPO, uh, Peter. It's a true run call play. And Rodgers can decide as he puts the ball out there for the running back if he likes what he's seeing coverage-wise, numbers in the box versus the run play and everything like that. He gives a little signal to his ear, right? I don't know what that means. Either way, all right, the thing that's I think they're trying to do here, a few plays before this, or it might've been the play before this. They threw a ball out into the flat to Devante Adams. They do this a lot. You play zone coverages and two guys come off the ball and they kind of block and Adams is in the slot and he comes out and gets the ball about one yard downfield and then turns it up and makes a play. This to me looks like the fake of that play. Hey, we just did this and had success with it. Now, Hey, Alan Lazard and Marquez Valdez (laughs) scaling, come off the ball and act like you're going to block because we're going to throw that ball to Devonte Adams. But then we want you to go up and hit up into the hole and Rogers will kind of look at Adams and they're going to come up and now you're going to hit them. It's the, the part I don't understand. You'll see Marquez Valdez stanley fake the block and then run to the back part of the end zone. Right. He's not open. Lazard though, Rogers sees a hole there. And I think where things go wrong here is the nickel back, uh, Murphy bunting goes outside of Lazard. And I think Lazard is supposed to go outside of him and then sit in that hole. And Rogers wants to throw him a rifle right there. Like you said, at the one or two yard line, he can catch it and maybe roll into the end zone, something like that. But the DB goes outside and Lazard comes inside. And now he's in no man's land and Rogers wanted him to be in that hole where he throws the ball. But, the defense played it a little different and Lazar didn't get to where he needed to go. And that led to the first incompletion.
0: Yeah. And it looked like if he caught it, he'd be surrounded at say the five or four yard line. Um, He wouldn't have gotten in for the touchdown, but clearly there, there appeared to be miscommunication. Yes. I don't know. Yeah, you're right. He should have been
3: vertical to me and my, my experience with that play is he should be vertical though. Like where you see the ball kind of going is where Rogers wants them to hit that right there at the two yard line. But you're right with the route he ran. If Rogers threw it to him, I mean, he's going to get crushed at the three yard line. There's two people
0: bearing down at him. Right. Second down uh, still second and goal from the eight trips, right. Again, right. This time there's two receivers on the left. Uh, There's no, there's no back. And Basically, it looks like Rodgers gets flushed, you know, and sort of tries to make a play on the run around where the right tackle would be under significant pressure from Indomitian Sue. Sioux. Right. And what was weird about this particular play is that he chose to try to throw to Devontae Adams right at the back of the end zone. And it was significantly over his head. It was maybe a foot over his head, but so it wasn't a great throw. But I give and Dominic Sue credit for the pressure on that play. How'd you see it?
3: Well, definitely. And and again, you know, this is uh, this is a play I have great experience with. Matt LaFleur, of course, came from Kyle Shanahan, who learned a lot of football from John Gruden, right? And this is what we would call, like you explained it, right? The back and the tight end are to the left. The three receivers are to the right they're running a double post concept basically where the inside receiver Marquez Valdez Stantling's going to run a post across the field. And then it's Devante Adams. Who's also going to run the post and outside of him is Alan Lazard running a little underneath route where if like, Hey, I don't like those two post routes. I can go to Lazard and hit him maybe at the two or three yard line. I don't, the throw is high degree difficulty. Yes. I mean, you said it right anyways. You know, Sue being there made it even harder. Um, Rodgers loves to do this, right, down in these areas. This is what makes him unstoppable in the red zone is he gets out of the pocket, and now people converge on him in the secondary, and he can manipulate them with his eyes, and he throws touchdown passes. My issue here, more than anything, on this one, if we're going to really break this down, I would look at it and go, this is a play – if Rodgers had back, I wish he would have just stood in the pocket. This is, you know, he's been under duress most of the game. The pass protection was pretty good on this play. He did not need to leave the pocket, but he said he saw the the red sea part, and I think he's thinking like he always does, like Mahomes or a Josh Allen. Let me attack the line of scrimmage. I'll get some linebacker to come up, and now I'll throw a laser right by him or something like that. So when he right. hits the back back step on his drop. He sees that hole as far as where he can scramble and he takes off, but the coverage is still good across the field. They're playing a a zone match coverage where if you come into their zone, they match you like man to man. And as he gets out of the pocket, there's not a lot of separation. Like you said, and Sue is bearing down on him and he throws a ball that, Hey, he's got to be a little careful. He's not trying to throw an interception here and lose the game right here. So he throws it high, and, of course, he's on run with Sue grabbing at him. And also, look at the play, too, Peter. He buckles his right knee and hyperextends his knee, which I'm not sure if that affects him maybe for not running the next play, as we're going to get into here in a second.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I I kind of looked at this. I gave more than I I thought this was Roger's fault. I, I really didn't, although he did throw the ball high. I really yeah, gave yeah, credit tough. to the Tampa Bay defense because right. not only are they pressuring him with a 300 pound guy who's got his hands on him. Right. But there's nobody. If you watch that from the end zone view, nobody is open. No, <laughs> you know, nope. he doesn't have anybody open. Sometimes no. you got to give credit to the other guys. That's right. We know. lose sight of that a lot in this day and age because of
3: fantasy yeah. football and quarterback numbers and, but, man, the defense, they're allowed to win some plays, too. And they got, yeah, you know, yeah. million-dollar athletes over there, to your point. And you're, you're exactly right. That's where there is nobody open. You're exactly right. And if you're going to be nitpicky, I would sit there and go, oh, man, I wish maybe he just stayed in the pocket and tried to throw the perfect laser in the back of the end zone to Devontae yeah. Adams. But this is what has made him dangerous his whole career, is getting out of the pocket and doing these type of things, and that, you know, like you said, led to a very tough, tough throw.
0: Okay. Third play. Yeah. The same formation, basically, as the second yes. play. Trips right. Two receivers to the left. Um, he gets a little bit of pressure. But, but what is so interesting about this play, it's like, I, I, I like the analysis of Troy Aikman on the replay. Aikman said, as sort of, you know, the Red Sea parted, and as he got to about the 12-yard line and cocked his arm, he does have uh, a buck behind him and a buck just, I think, uh, Jason Pierre-Paul right, right up to his left a few running steps away. But he also has a large amount of grass in front of him. And it led me to think, I'm not positive he would have scored a touchdown. Right. You know, if, if he is Taylor Heineke, On that play, I think he scores like Taylor Heineke. If that's the last play of his life, that's fine with him. But he is not (laughs) not scoring. You know, he's going to find some way to get in. Right. But but that's not that's I'm not saying that's not the Rogers ethos, but that's not the way he typically plays. Um, But but what was so interesting is that Aikman said it definitely looked like he had a shot if he tucked it and taken off had taken off. To score if right. he picked up some yards then it's not so much a decision for Matt LaFleur like for instance what Aikman is saying and I think he's right if if Roger slides down at the three or even the two I mean who knows what could be available to them because right. I mean what if you put AJ Dillon in the game fourth and goal from the two not saying that you would run but maybe they would at least have to respect that. But take me through this play as you saw it.
3: Well, you're right. I mean, listen, you, you said a lot of good things there. You're exactly right. It's the same formation. They're running a little like double under concept to the right. Two guys are going five yards and they're running straight across the field. And then the inside of the three receivers is running a corner route to the back pylon in case he got some sort of blitz or anything he'd want to throw to him. Now, what I can't really figure out on the play is just the one thing is Devonte Adams starts to run his route on the under route. And then about the second step in makes a double move to go vertical. And I don't know if that's called and designed right there. I feel like it is because I don't think Rogers is not scrambling yet or anything like that. I think they're thinking, Hey, we run this play a lot where he does this and comes across. I think the safety and linebacker might be really over-aggressive and jump it, right? And then he'll go straight in the back of the end zone and he'll be wide open. Devin White grabs him as he goes by. So that kind of ruins that thought altogether. You said it right. I mean, this was a play, unlike the last one, where there was pressure right from the get-go. Shaquille Barrett, uh, spin moves Ricky Wagner, and now Rodgers has to avoid and take his eyes off of the receivers down the field a little bit. As he's doing that and he runs up in the pocket, he's doing what he always does, and like Mahomes does, right? He's attacking the line of scrimmage, but he's looking at his receivers to see if he can get somebody he can throw a laser to for a touchdown. The coverage stays very good. You know, Lazard might have been open on the right when he first makes the break into that hole, but he's still looking at Devontae Adams at that point because that's his first read and it's his best player, and he'd like to get him the ball in the biggest situation right there. Now he moves and he certainly could have got down to the three or four yard line. I don't deny that at all. Aaron Rodgers from five years ago scores a touchdown, I think, but the one at this point right now, and I think the key thing that you said, Peter, to me, it's the pump faking. Like if he stepped up in the pocket and just tucked it and said, I'm running, I think he probably makes it. But the fact that he's not running full speed and he's looking to pump fake and throw it. I think he's a little unaware of how close the guys are getting on him. And don't you Aaron, think yeah. Chris, don't you yeah. think
0: Chris um, on his when he first extends his arm back. Right. Right right then you see Devin White, you know, contacting Devonte Adams. I definitely yes. don't think it was a penalty, but he contacted him, okay? Right. And at that moment, that's the only moment right when he begins to get around Devin White that he had any chance to complete the ball to Devin White. It felt like to me, he waited a millisecond too long because by the time he actually threw the ball, there's Edwards and Adams in which I'll tell you one thing that is totally fascinating. And I give the Bucks personnel staff, I give Todd Bowles a right. tremendous amount of credit. You are playing against the guy who you think is the greatest quarterback of all time. I'm putting words in your mouth. You love Aaron Rodgers. I love him. Everybody loves him. Right. And, and here you have the two backup safeties and Chris, you realize this year, I just got to look this up. Hang on one second. You realize this year. Okay. Mike Edwards played 189 snaps in the regular season and Adams played 24 snaps in the regular season. And here is the NFC Championship game. It comes down to your third and fourth safety, okay? And it comes down to making a play on maybe the best wide receiver in the game against maybe the best quarterback in the game. I love what Adams and Edwards did here because this is the big, big, big moment of their careers. And they both came through.
3: No doubt about it. Uh, You you said it right. I mean, you gave the the compliments to all the right people. And I'll just add to this. Two things that, you know, the great luxury of their front four being able to get to Rodgers by themselves, right? They never had to put their DBs in a lot of compromising positions because their front four dominated the Packers' uh, pass protection O-line. And then the other thing that jumps out into your Todd Bowles thing and what you're saying, you know, we've seen – We've seen the last two plays we're talking about, we're talking about defense that's kind of all over the route concepts of what Green Bay's doing. They obviously had a pretty good feel for how they were going to be attacked down here in this area. And, you know, I think the big thing that you bring up, because, again, it's not a perfect game, but when he first cocks that arm, right, like you talked about, and now Shaquille Barrett's also kind of in his way. So he's got to move and he's cocking his arm at the same time. When he's doing that, you said it. Devon Devin White, you know, is hitting him, has a little hold of him. I don't think it was pass interference either. It's just rubbing, rubbin's racing. That's part of football. I'm with you. But during that moment, Rogers is looking at him. There's physical contact with his receiver. And in that moment, if you watch real closely from the end zone copy he looks outside. So he's looking at Devonte Adams and then he sees him being grabbed and he just starts to go like this. Cause he's going, all right, I got to get off him. It's not, he's not going to get open. And now he looks at that and Devin white to your Todd Bowles point, they've taught him, Hey, once he crosses, you look for the next crosser. And he let Adams go and went to Lazard. So now he Rogers is thinking, wait, I I I didn't have Adams. I should have Lazard. Wait, that guy's there still, and now he tries to come back to Adams.
0: And, and just like you a little said, bit too late. It's too late, late. It's yeah. Too late. right? Yeah. yeah. Um. So, last thing I would ask you, sure. I just wish after the game that Rogers had said, uh, "Look, you know we lost." Plenty of blame to go around. I could have played better on the last series, blah, 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 all that other stuff. I just really didn't like how it seemed coming out of there. Not that he threw Matt LaFleur under the bus, he didn't. But that, um, you know, in my opinion, and again, it's hard when it's 25 minutes after the game and you're sitting there and you're taking these questions, you're in despair. You, you know, it's like you're playing Texas, you're, you're playing for Texas, and you just lost Oklahoma, right? And you know, you've got to answer the question. You're heartbroken. 10 yeah. minutes out. Yeah, you were heartbroken because right. you realized you may never get there. So I, I kind of give Rodgers a pass on this. But man, I wish he had just said, or I wish he had said on the McAfee show that, you know what, I deserve some blame on this too. And give Tampa some credit because they did X, Y, and Z. How do you look at all that? Well, listen,
3: I, I think, yes, what could he have said that? Certainly. I mean, could have smoothed things over. He's always been very honest in his interviews. And of course it's always, it's gotten him in trouble because people read into things a little too much. I think at times and all of that as well, you know, he, he didn't throw his coach under the bus. Like you said, I think the whole football world at that moment was sitting there going, wait, they're going to kick the field goal. So that was shocking. And if there was ever a moment where you could go, man, we should have gone for it there. That would have been the moment you could have said it in a press conference and nobody would have been like, well, that was stupid. He shouldn't have said that. We all know that. Um, I, again, I think Rodgers could have said those things. But we got to understand, too, like Rodgers gets blamed for everything. You know, it, what we're talking about in these three plays, you know, I, I don't look at them and go, oh, man, Aaron Rodgers really messed them up. The, to me, that right. was like you, like you said, it wasn't perfect by Rodgers, but it was right. more the defense won the plays and had presented issues for them down here. Right. And I think to me at the end of the day, uh, it, it,
0: it's football. It's, it's football.
3: They got big time <laughs> players on their, yeah. on their team. They match up very well with green Bay. That's why they beat them in their regular season. And I also just, I feel for Aaron Rodgers. Yeah, I like him. You know that. But it's just another instance of where, you know, there's just no room for error for Aaron Rodgers. The room for error has always been so minute compared to the other great quarterbacks, in my opinion. And that's where I feel for him. Not that he's perfect and he should win every football game. But overall, in that game the other day, (laughs) he played pretty damn good. And the mistakes... We're certainly less than the quarterback he played against. And here he is going home again in this scenario, and that's where I feel for him, and uh, it's a tough
0: situation. It is. Chris Sims, thank you so much. I said I'd keep you 10 minutes. I kept you 23, and you were extremely enlightening, so thank you. No, it was great. I like talking about it. You're allowed to keep me for 23 anytime you want.
1: For the world's
4: greatest
3: athletes. This is the showdown we've been waiting for. There is nothing like competing on the world's biggest stage. world record again. for the United States. Unbelievable.
1: And when that stage is Paris, anything can happen.
0: I have never seen anything like this. How about that?
1: An Olympics unlike any other. What a performance. The Paris Olympics.
2: This summer on NBC and streaming on Peacock.
0: And now Robert Sala, the new head coach of the New York Jets. Happy to be joined this week on the podcast by uh, Robert Sala, uh, the new coach of the New York Jets. Uh, one of a crop of new coaches that America is going to get to know here over the next uh, few months. Robert, thanks so much for joining me. Oh, Thank you for having me. So, Robert, I think... I think America would be very, very interested in your story, your backstory, particularly you know, as you were growing up in Detroit. Tell me what it was like growing up in Detroit, and how did you fall in love with football?
4: You know, um, so uh, Dearborn, uh, which is a specific city, is just a suburb outside of Detroit that uh, uh, it's, it's the largest concentration of Middle, Eastern, Middle Easterns in the world outside of the Middle East. And uh, you grow up, it's almost like its own little bubble. You know, the, the language that's spoken, the slang of English, uh, 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 Arabic is written on every single store uh, that you can possibly imagine. The high school that I went to uh, is a public school that's over 90% Middle Eastern. And, and the football program is rich in tradition. Uh, at one point uh, during my time, we had 34 consecutive winning seasons, which was a state record at the time. And so it's uh, a, a tremendous... Uh, high school, in terms of tradition, and uh, you know, you just look at that community and, and how unique it is. Football acted as the bridge to creating a connection to American culture for when my grandfather migrated over. And so, at uh, for my family, I mean, I was born. I, I tell people out of the womb, we were football. We were a football family. We had from nineteen sixty four until me in nineteen ninety seven. There was a sala on the football team at Fortson. Uh, high school. and wow. so it is a very long rich history of a uh, tradition of us being over there. and so it's I mean like I said, it's football's in my blood and it's a uh, it's a big big part of that that community.
0: So there's a little bit of a hole in your Wikipedia bio and you're gonna have to you're gonna have to fill it for us, okay? And that hole is you go to Northern Michigan University. Um, you play football there. You play tight end, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. And you play tight end there. And then you leave college. But the love of football doesn't leave you. Yep. And I wonder how, what happens at the end of your college experience then that leads you back to football?
4: So, um, you know, I went to college and, I you know, the Division two schools were uh, offering me scholarships, and I went to Northern Michigan because of the education program that they have. Uh, I always felt like I'd be a teacher one day, and uh, ended up falling into finance and business and all that, and so when football was done, I got into the corporate world. I was a, a commercial lender, a, com- a credit analyst, uh, more specifically at Comerica Bank World Headquarters in Detroit, And um, but this urge to want to stay involved in This would have
0: been in, in 2001, right?
4: 2001. 2001 and so it was the first time that I'd been away from football so I'm in a cubicle now it's the first time I've been away from football since I was a water boy for my brother's team when I had on the old Dearborn Mustangs at five years old and uh so uh and it was good you know I was happy no training camp body felt good you know it was, everything was good and um unfortunately 9-11 happened and uh as as the story goes uh, you know my brother was in the second tower uh and he Thankfully, he got out. But through tragedy, what, what did your brother do? Oh, man. Uh, he, well, he was on training at Morgan Stanley at the time. So he was at he was there on training. He was supposed to be there for a couple of weeks, and then he was going to come back and, and get to work. And so uh, he was in the second tower on the 64th floor, I believe. Um, but like I said, thankfully, he made it out. And, you know, so through his tragedy, through that tragedy and through his experience, I was able to self-reflect on whether or not I was actually doing what I wanted to do. And so it was a slow buildup. All the way till after the Super Bowl that year, if I remember right, it was the Rams and Patriots. And uh, I woke up the next morning. I went to the office. I'm sitting in my cubicle, and it just—I became overwhelmed with emotion. And I had to had to pursue what I pursue my passion.
0: Wow. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. You, your first job was on the Michigan State correct. staff. Is that correct? You gotta you gotta take me from early february 2002 to getting on the staff of a big 10 team
4: all right so i'll I'll go through it you know so uh jeff Sergalis was my high school coach and uh he got me in contact with uh uh, mike volmer who was the director of football operations at michigan state at the time and i drove up there coat and tie and uh i asked for a job uh he just gave me that interview gave me that uh just out of respect for my high school coach and uh you know he um he tried to talk me out of it. He's like he's looking at my resume. He's like, "Why do you want to do this? It looks like you can make a heck of a lot of money in real estate." And I was like, "I probably could, but you know, I want to I want to do this. I want to pursue coaching." And so he said, "Well, I'll tell you what. We don't have a job, but you can volunteer your your time. We can make you a Spartan aide, but you have to do your own like work. You have to pay through grad school. You have to do it yourself." And I was like, "Sure." So I bought a couple of income houses to kind of offset what i was about to go through and i got myself enrolled in college uh at uh, michigan state the uh kinesiology program and um and i'm and i'm rolling so now i'm doing the camps with them and right before the season starts ben mcadoo takes a job as an o-line coach somewhere else i I forget the school and uh and was a ga spot wide open and i had been there for a couple of months and bobby williams said hey man you want the job? And I was like, heck yeah, save me a few bucks. (laughs) And so that's how it all started. So Bobby Williams put me on offense to begin with. I was an offensive GA to start and uh, John L. Smith came in the next year and and he's the one who put me on defense. And that's, that's where I've been since.
0: Wow. Um, Had you had the choice? It's interesting. Brandon Staley was uh, a college quarterback and then he became a defensive coach in college football and went to the NFL. And, and he really believes that having played on offense, you know, in college sort of helps his kind of worldview, his global view as a coach, not necessarily an NFL coach, but just simply as a coach. So, you know, does your offensive experience, do you think it make you a more well-rounded coach? I, I
4: believe so. I mean, you look at some of the guys, um, uh, Nate Hackett over at uh, Green Bay played linebacker and and he's been a pretty successful offensive coordinator. And so uh, I do think being able to have that, uh, that connection, it's something that I want to do here in terms of getting offensive guys and putting them on the defensive side so they get that view while they're young and then shift them back just from a developmental standpoint to get uh, uh, more broader in terms of coaching so you can approach it from both angles. And so... I, I, I do believe that it does help um, uh, just having that understanding of football And I'm not going to pretend like I can call plays on the offensive side of the ball but understanding what they're trying to accomplish uh, the techniques that they're using and the ways they're they're, they're trying to attack defenses is a, is, a, is a big help
0: Richard Sherman once you describe once described you to me as a guy who is an incredibly uh, smart, thinker on the defensive side of the ball. He said, every time we got a game plan, I'm confident that we are going to be in position to win that game and to win these individual battles we have. But he said the other thing about him is he's been in our shoes. He understands that you've got to play with emotion, that you can't necessarily overload players with you know, schemes, designs, everything like that, so that they can't go out and sort of unleash their their inner greatness on the field. I want you to describe to me, you must have to find a balance when you're trying to teach players what you want them to do. And yet, when they get on the field, you want them to, to just go out and play.
4: Yeah. Now, there's a um, – I always say that scheme is football 101. Uh, understanding scheme. That's that's one-on-one teaching, and so how much scheme you can give, you can give everyone all kinds of scheme. You're just you're always staying in that one-on-one mindset. Three-on-one football is about teaching technique and making sure you're on your top of your fundamentals and top of your uh, what you're being asked to do within that scheme. 501 is where we're all trying to uh, get to, and that's actually understanding what's happening to you as an individual. What's happening to you on the football field and having awareness of what's going on, uh, whether it's offense or defense, really understanding the opposite side of the ball and what they're trying to accomplish so you can maximize your play. Yep. So when we get, when you're trying to get to 501, I've always been the believer, and there's a million ways to going to cat. I've always been a believer that it's impossible to have a lot of 101 teaching if you're really trying to get to 501, so scheme to me has to be the equivalent of putting a spoon to your mouth when you're eating. It's an it's an unconscious. You're not thinking about it. If you're thinking about your job, it's impossible to be able to react at the level that you need to when things are happening to you at such a fast uh, fast pace. So um, there is a very fine balance to me in terms of how much 101 scheme you put on a player uh, to get him to play at a 501 level. Because there is a breaking point where a player starts thinking too much. And you have to, as a coach, understand everyone's breaking point. Uh, because the objective is, you know, I always say there's, there's a the difference between player A and player Z is minuscule. It's just the ability to, one, have an opportunity, and two, being able to unlock your full athletic ability. And so superstars aside, they're, those guys don't need coaching, but the rest, the most of the league, most of the league is A to Z and those guys all just need opportunities and they all need their athleticism unlocked. And, uh, and, and I've always been the believer that you unlock it by allowing them to play at a level where they're not thinking about the, what's what they have to do rather than thinking about what's happening to them.
0: I think that's a great point. Um, I, I'm very curious. One of the things that I thought was, was a real sort of mark in your favor. Okay. Okay is uh, what a good job you did this year coaching this team. Most people will look at last year when you guys were, you know, a preeminent defense uh, in the NFL. And I I would look at this year as a better job by you for a very simple reason. You know, to me, you're the most valuable players. And look, Fred Warner became – an incredibly valuable player to you. But if you would ask me at the beginning of the year, who's the mo- two most valuable players on that San Francisco defense, one would have been Bosa, one would have been Sherman. And obviously Bosa is gone for the whole year after uh, your first game. And then Richard Sherman is mostly out, but some in, in the lineup. And yet still um, you, your defense was one of the best defenses in the league. And, played really like its hair is on fire throughout the season. I thought Fred Warner by the end of the year, he's the first linebacker I picked on my all-pro team this year. I just thought he was an unbelievable football player. But but the point, the question I want to ask you is, look, a lot of teams look really good on opening day. A lot of teams have great starting lineups. But in football, it matters – who on your 11-man defense, who's your 21st player? Who's your 19th player? Who is your fifth DB? Because at some point in the course of the year, you know he is going to have to play 55 snaps one Sunday. So how do you develop that and how do you get that across to players who are the 52nd guy on your roster, who by the end of the year are going to have to be – important players in a winning franchise.
4: Uh, it, it's just like we just talked about the difference between player A and player Z is minuscule. So um, uh, let's just create a scenario. Tar uh, gets hurt starting strong safety. Marcel Harris steps in. I want somebody to tell me that Marcel Harris doesn't think that he should be a starter in this league. Every player has believes that they're starters in this league. They have that confidence and they need that vote of confidence from their coach. But they also have to know that they can go out there and play as fast as humanly possible where they can unlock all that athleticism so they can prove that they're starters in this league and so when we go back to what we talked about with scheme giving these guys the ability to be so in tune to the scheme even though their reps aren't maximized throughout the year but they're able to get their mental reps schemes not being recreated day in and day out it's just being fine-tuned and repped and repped and repped and so every rep they're taking is with purpose and so if they're in the event they did have to step in, they can do so at the best they can possibly be. And um, and so there is a, a, a credit, a major credit to those kids who step up into the men, really, who step up and uh, take advantage of those opportunities. But it is it's about opportunity for those guys who are the like you mentioned, the 22nd, uh, 19, 18 or 20th guy on the roster. It's just a matter of opportunity and being in a system that allows them to unlock all their athleticism because they don't have to think when they hit the football field. And that's uh, credit to them, a lot of staying locked in, same with the coaches, keeping them engaged, keeping them getting their reps, having the after-practice meetings, after-practice uh, individual sessions to get them and keep them up to speed so in the event that we did lose somebody, somebody else could jump in and still play at a high level.
0: I'm going to ask you two other things. Um, the first is, and this is ridiculously beyond your control it's 10 years before you were born more probably more than 10 years but the new york jets last won a super bowl 52 years ago and i live in brooklyn and on the occasions where i have new york sports talk on the radio when people call and talk about the jets they have one of two attitudes they're mad as hell and they're not going to take it anymore. Or they talk like their dog just died because the Jets can't get it right. And you are coming into a situation where other than a little bit of an oasis a few years ago, when Rex Ryan had the team playing well and playing in some big games, this team really hasn't won anything for a half century. I mean, you are up against, the odds of all odds, it seems to me. What do you think of that? And how do you turn around the ethos and attitude of an organization that really has been down for a while?
4: You know, there's uh, you can never hide from the past, right? I mean, it's it's real. It's uh, uh, the the past is the past, but at the same time, you can never look behind you. You always got to find a way to move forward. And one thing I learned because there is perception. That, the one thing I learned through these six interviews is that a lot of the perception that people talk about when you walk into these buildings and the perception of different ownership groups and hierarchy and all that, it's just talking to them. You can feel like that perception was actually pretty accurate. The one thing I can tell people. And when I walked into this building and had the opportunity to visit with Christopher Johnson and uh, Joe and Jaime, that you can, you can throw that perception away. These are unbelievable people who have, unbelievable who displayed so much humility in terms of wanting to collaborate and communicate and do things the right way to make sure that no emotional decisions are being made and everything's being done in a calculated manner after a collaboration between everybody and when you have that i just think that it's impossible to fail i do i think it, i think when people good people get together and they communicate to make the right decisions for the organization it's really hard to fail and uh and so what I say to fans is judges moving forward, uh, dive in head first and trust that everything we're doing from now till whenever is designed to win championships. And I have no doubt in my mind that this organization is going to win a championship one day. I don't know. I can't tell you when, but I promise you it's going to win because the people who are making the decisions have the have the right
0: mindset. Isn't it kind of cool now to know that Joe Namath is rooting for you to succeed it's unbelievable, <laughs> <laughs> so main, man. I just, you know, you grow up
4: watching all the highlight tapes, and it's Broadway Joe, and you know, being a uh, being in New York with everything that's happened throughout throughout time. This is this is the spot. This is home, and
0: uh, I, it's uh, it's it's cool. So, that's the other thing I wanted to ask you. So, you know, you've lived in a few places, and now you come to New York, actually suburban New Jersey, but you'll be in New York a time or two uh, when the pandemic is over. What does it feel like to you? And think back to the 20 year twenty years ago when you sat in that cubicle and said, damn it, I'm going to chase my dream. What must it feel like right now to be Robert Sala? Uh, blessed. Um.
4: <laughs> it's um... – it's a blessing because you know the on un, the unfortunate events of 9/11 was what triggered everything. Uh, to win a Super Bowl at MetLife as a Seahawk, um, to be the head coach of the Jets, New York of all of all teams, and it's the 20th anniversary. The day our first game is the day after the 20th anniversary, and I'm the 20th head coach of the New York Jets. I'm supposed to be here. I believe that there's a reason for this, and uh, and we're gonna get this right. There's no doubt in my mind. So,
0: Robert Sala, from your lips to God's ears, in and in the middle, stopping by Jet fans' ears. Anyway, <laughs> I really appreciate you joining me. Thank you so no,
4: much. Thank you, Peter.
0: My thanks to Jason Light, to Chris Sims, and to Robert Sala for their time and their insights following a really really busy championship weekend and a busy NFL hiring season. I really appreciate you joining me. I am going to the Super Bowl next week, but I'm not going to be there until Thursday. So I'll do one more podcast next week. It won't be from the site, but then I will be at uh, Super Bowl 55 Kansas City and Tampa. And um, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. It's going to be a fairly unique thing, leaving the comfort of my seventh-floor apartment in Brooklyn uh, where I have watched the 2020 NFL season uh, and finally going out to be live in a stadium watching a game. Talk a little bit about that next week when I see you for another edition of the podcast. But thanks so much for listening and for watching this week enjoy your weekend. It's the non-football weekend, but I'm sure you will find plenty of things to do with your time. Thanks for listening.